Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Monica, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And today is Friday, the 8th of November, 2013. And today we are reading from the Big Book, and we are in the chapter of Vision for You. And we are on page 157, and we are going to start with the paragraph, The Man in the Bed. And today's readers are 12 Steps, Margaret K., 12 Traditions, Meg O., Katie G., Sharon R.S., Kim and Hoodie. And the share code for yesterday, Thursday, the 7th day of November, is 5419. 5419. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and the 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. And I will now ask Margaret Kay to read the 12 steps, please. Good morning, Monica. Good morning, Vision for You. This is Margaret Kay, recovered in South Jersey. One, we admitted we were powerless over food and that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe in a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Margaret. I will now ask Meg O. to please read the Twelve Traditions. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Meg O., and I am a very grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater in Vermont. The Twelve Traditions. One. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. 
Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personality. We'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Meg. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature and stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share. But we ask that you keep your commenting to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinent requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinent requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. And today we are resuming our study of the big book. We are in the chapter of Vision for You. We are on page 157, and we are starting with the fifth paragraph that begins, The Man in the Bed. And I will ask Katie G. to please start us reading this morning. Good morning, everyone. This is Katie G., Recovered Compulsive Overeater from Boston, Mass. Grateful to be here abstinent and sober this morning. The man in the bed was told of the acute uh, poisoning from which he suffered, how it deteriorates the body of an alcoholic and warps his mind. There was much talk about the mental state preceding the first drink. 
yes, that's me, said the sick man, the very image. You fellows know your stuff all right, but I don't see what good it'll do. You fellows are somebody I was once. You fellows are somebody I was once, but I'm a nobody now. From what you tell me, I know more than ever. I can't stop. At this, both the visitors burst into a laugh. Said the fellow, said the fellow anonymous. Damn little to laugh about that I can see. So good morning, everyone. I guess I really want to focus on the mental state preceding the first drink. So what are we talking about here? What is this mental state preceding the first drink? Well, if we go to more about alcoholism, what do we talk about and more about alcoholism? The insanity winning out over and over again. On page 33, it says, We doubt if many of them can do it because none of them will really want to stop and hardly one of them because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired will find he can win out. To be gravely affected, um, one does not necessarily have to drink for a long time. So we're talking about insanity. We're talking about the insanity of, you know, thinking of, of you know, thinking that my my mind um, which with this peculiar mental obsession is going to fix me, is going to cure me. On page 42, he says, um, and this is in more about alcoholism, I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in these strange mental blank spots. I would never have been able to understand people who said the problem had been hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. So we have been reading up to this point that, you know, the main problem centers in my mind, telling me, you know what, it's going to be different now. I'm totally, I'm totally completely fine, you know, I, I can handle this on my own. And that peculiar mental state leading right up um, to, to that first drink, it's insanity, you know, and I can't, um, I, I can't do it alone. And the minute I'm thinking about me, my selfishness, my dishonesty, my resentment, and my fear, how can, I, how can I get what I need out of my life today? And how can I do it without God? Like, I, that is putting me on shaking ground and leading me right back to the drink. It says on page 42, they outlined the spiritual answer and program of action, which hundreds of them had followed successfully. The program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic, which is radical and extreme. I need to have to throw out several lifelong conceptions out of the window and go through with this process to have this alcoholic condition, this mental state relieved. So that means understanding that I am a compulsive overeater, that I am hopeless without a power greater than myself, that I cannot resolve this mental obsession on my own and that without God's help, um, I am doomed and that the only way to get to God is to clear up the wreckage of my past, to get right with God's kids and start helping others. And then and only then can I continue to have potentially these 24 hours of abstinence, of sobriety, as long as I stay active in 10, 11, and 12. So, um, you know, I'm going to keep that line going today. If you, need, if you are new to this line, um, there, we are talking about the disease of food addiction, the disease of alcoholism and compulsive overeating, and the main problem which centers in our mind and our thinking. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Katie. And would anyone like to comment on these two paragraphs? 
press star 1 to unmute. This is Sally. Good morning, Sally. Go ahead. Thank you, Monica. I, too, would like to um, share on that line. There was much talk about the mental state preceding the first bite, the first drink, in my case, the first bite, in our case, the first bite. And um, what comes to my mind is um, the importance that we, we bring to this process. On page 89, it tells us that ministers and doctors are competent, but because of our own drinking experience, we are uniquely useful. And that is a very powerful thing for us to understand. Um, when it, earlier in the page it says, um, said one of the visitors, we're giving you a treatment for alcoholism. And it sounds an awful lot like something Dr. Bob, Dr. Bob would say uh, as a doctor, that he came to give a treatment. And it's interesting because when we call each other, when we make these phone calls, and when we sit and we read this book together, we're giving ourselves a treatment. This is our cure for our, for our state of mind. And so there was much talk about the mental state preceding the first drink. That was what they spent time. That's what the treatment was, and that's what made them uniquely qualified, uniquely useful to this man. That's what makes us uniquely useful to each other. With that, I pass. Thank you, Sally. Would anyone else like to comment on these two paragraphs? Good morning. This is Bella. Can I share? Good morning, Bella. Go ahead. Good morning. My name is Bella, and I am a thankful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Monica, for leading this meeting, and thank you, everybody that is on the line. Um, It's a wonderful, wonderful paragraph that brings the hope. Um, Yes, thank God. Now that I'm in the program, I, I know that my disease of compulsive overeating is, um, is an allergy in the body and, uh, a, and also in the mind. Now, till now, I saw that it's only in the body, and I was looking for a solution a, according to the body, and I was busy dieting all the time. And it didn't work. It didn't work because it's also an obsession in the mind. And I need a solution for that mind. Now, I I could think, oh, so it's something in my mind. So maybe I need now a psychiatrist. Maybe I need now medication for my mind to, to change my mind. So this is what it says. It says, I was some I uh, I was once but I am a nobody now and this is the hope when I came to this point that I saw that I was once somebody and now I am not anymore wow this is the point that no I don't want to feel I am nobody I want to feel I am somebody but a real one I need a spiritual solution when I am coming to understand that 
No, I don't have control. No, I am a human and a human that have limitations and uh, and I don't know everything and I will be never perfect. Wow, I am looking now to be connected to God, to be a partner with God, to let God come into my life all the time. And then when I am connected to God, yes, I am somebody. Yes, I am somebody. God gave me so many opportunities. He gives me, he gave me so many gifts in life. Yes, now that I know that I am human and now that I am not looking to run the world and now that I know that, yes, I am human and I do mistakes. Yes, I am looking for a solution for my mind and my mind is now to be connected to God. I want to be together with God. I know that God is with me. I don't need to approve to nobody my existence. I know that I am here because this is God's will. And then I I am changing my mind. I am changing my point of view about myself, about myself in the world, and about other people, what the, the reason for other people to be here in my life, in the world. I don't need to prove anymore. I... I am free. I, I, I know I am connected to God. And the food is not the problem. The food is only a symptom. And now that I, I am connected to God, I give all my power to God. Yes, I know I am somebody. I am somebody with my limitations and with my character defect. And I am somebody that God loves and trusts. Thank you for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Bella. Eileen? Eileen, go ahead, Eileen. Thanks, Monica. This is Eileen, a food addict from Massachusetts in recovery. Uh, These two paragraphs spoke to me. Um, You know, the man in the bed was told of the acute poisoning from which he suffered. I didn't want to believe that I had acute poisoning because of overeating sugar and flour, but I did. It took me a long time to welcome that fact and how it deteriorated the body of an alcoholic and warps his mind. That's what eventually happened to me. Um, The mental obsession got so brutal with the food that uh, I, I couldn't function anymore. You know, the progressiveness of this illness takes off. Uh, There was much talk about the mental state preceding the first drink. Um, I could so identify with people when I walked into my first meeting in 1986. Being only 125 pounds, I was like, I was home. Uh, I was like, oh my God, these people know exactly what I do with food and they stuff down their feelings like I do. But did I get it right right away? No. I was not willing to surrender it. That's what a hold, that's what a grip the sugar and flour had over me, my mind and my body and my spirit. Yes, that's me, said the sick man, the very image 
what good of it it'll do? You know, so I could identify with, but it's got to come down to the willingness to surrender your power and your control, not just over food. I'm realizing now that I try to take control of people as well. It doesn't work, I mean. Get to the willingness. The very image. You you. You fellows know what your stuff, what your stuff is all right, but I don't see what good it'll do. You fellows are somebody. I was once, but I'm a nobody now. See the fear, doubt, and insecurity take over in this disease, and once you put your drug down, you you tend to regain some of that self-image. And and you'll like yourself again. And then you've really got to work on those 12 steps. So I'm so grateful to all of you for listening to me and for sharing. And I learned so much for this meeting for the past two, two and a half months I've been on it. Thank you. I'll pass. Thank you, Eileen. Leah. Leah, please go ahead. Thank you so much, Monica. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leigh. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I wanted to touch on this statement here. Um, From what you tell me, I know more than ever I can't stop. So uh, Bill W. and Dr. Bob had done their job. Not only had they relayed their own personal drinking experiences, but they also had um, told them about, told uh, Bill D. about the medical business. You know, they had laid it out about the acute poisoning from what she suffered, the allergy of the body, the fact that uh, once um, Bill D. ingested alcohol, he was biologically mandated to have a phenomenon of craving for more of the same. But they also, of course, taught about the mental state, the greater aspect of the disease, that yes, Bill D. can stop for a period of time. I mean, he was thrown into the hospital ward eight times within six months to dry out. He can stop for a period of time, but he can't stay stopped. He doesn't learn from his consequences of his behavior. He forgets to remember, <laughs> um, you know, what happens when he picks up that first drink. His, his mind is flawed. It's broken, the greater aspect of his disease. So uh, when Bill D. states, from what you tell me, I know more than ever, I can't stop, um, Bill D. has, uh, you know, begun to fully concede to his innermost self his powerlessness. These guys, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob, have aimed to produce a crisis relating the seriousness of their own experience. And perhaps that's working. And that is so necessary for each and every one of us, for Bill D. as well, of course, to admit 100% powerlessness. 100% powerlessness. No, because 98% powerlessness won't work. My book teaches me we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. You know, why is that so important? Why is that admission so necessary? Why was it so necessary for me? You know, uh, and that's necessary for each and every one of us, you know, to, to fully concede in our innermost self. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about it, when, if anybody else understands who and what I am. Do I understand who and what I am? 
do I understand that I have an allergy of the body? And that will never change. The fact that I am biologically mandated to be allergic to certain food substances is a fact about Leia. And that fact will never change. Do I accept that? Check. And do I accept the, the greater aspect of my disease, the obsession of the mind? You know, do I accept there is nothing like testing out personal control? Do I accept that? Why is that admission so necessary? And why do the people that wrote these steps include that idea of powerlessness over, over food or over alcohol? Well, because, you know, if I don't believe I am who I say I am, then the rest of it uh, can just be thrown away. Because if I'm only 98% uh, powerless, then I don't need God. Because that 2% of me is going to get in there and try to play God. You know, so, you know, that's how my disease functions. That's how my disease functions. If I don't believe I am who I say I am, unless I humble myself by taking that first step, I don't need the rest of the program. Because if I think I have power over this disease, if Bill D. thought he had power over this disease, then he did not need to believe in a power greater than himself to restore him to sanity. And if you don't believe that, then you don't have to turn your will and your life over, and you certainly don't need the inventory process of four through nine. So this statement here, from what you tell me, I know more than ever I can stop, to that we say hooray, you know, beaten into a state of reasonableness. That's where he had to be. That's where I had to be. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Would anyone else like to comment on this two paragraphs? Okay, this is Monica, and I will jump in here and say a couple of things. So, he, so yeah, um, he's, he's being told here um, of the acute poisoning from which he suffered, how it deteriorates the body of the alcoholic and warps his mind. There was much talk about the mental state preceding the first drink. So, yeah, so here he's, uh, you know, he'd been shackled in the bed for a few days and, uh looks up and sees these two strange guys look at him and say, you know, we got a, we got a treatment for you. And uh, so they're giving him the information here, and we're, they're wanting him to identify. They're wanting him to be able to come and understand that he has this too, you know, that he's powerless. And I was powerless over my body. I was powerless over the allergy. I you know, I, I can't stop Your after I've started. I can't stop after I've started eating. I'm powerless over my mind, over the obsession of my mind, because I can't stay stopped. My mental state tells me it'll be okay this time. It'll be different this time. You'll be able to control it this time. And then also, I'm powerless over my will, over the unmanageability, my trying to control. Because you know what? And this really hit me. I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. Yes, that's me. That's me. That's the very image. I've spent a lifetime trying to control all this, and I can't do it. I can't do it. And they're going, yay, that's good, that's good. They haven't said it yet, but they're thinking, we have a solution for you. 
And I'll pass with that. And would anybody else like to comment on these two paragraphs before we move on? Hi, this is Beth from San Francisco. Hi, Beth. Go ahead. Yes, um, uh, the part I want to comment is the part where uh, they're laughing at him because, and he and he gets a little upset here, and because they know that it's only seemingly hopeless, and he only knows, Bill D only knows that he feels hopeless, and he's tried different things. He's tried, you know, being in this hospital eight times, and it hasn't worked. He's probably tried a plethora of other things, and it hasn't worked. And he's help, he's hopeless, and he feels helpless. But but you know, Dr. Bob and Bill W. know that it's only seemingly hopeless because they have an answer now. Because we have a pro we have a program now, and I know I've heard this a million times. I've even said it myself in meetings. If I can do it, anyone can do it. And that's why they're laughing because they were hopeless, they were helpless. And if they can do it, anyone can do it. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Beth. And let's move on to the next uh, couple of paragraphs. And Sharon, could you read for us, please? Good morning. This is Sharon, Monica. Thank you. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Very grateful to be on the line with you this morning. The two friends spoke of their spiritual experience and told him about the course of action they carried out. He interrupted, I used to be strong in the church, but that won't fix it. I prayed to God on hangover mornings and sworn that I'd never touch another drop, but by nine o'clock, I'd be boiled as an owl. I love this imagery here, and it just reminds me of so much of myself. But here we have a guy who he thought that he believed. He believed that he had faith in God. He was convinced, convinced that God was not able to help him because God had not shown up for him when he was hungover and God didn't help him to stick to what he had sworn to do when he was recovering from a hangover. So when I read this, it it just it almost sounds a little bit ridiculous that he he would put himself in this position and then believe that God couldn't help him because God because when he was hung over God wouldn't help him stick to his word. But what we are told in the big book and I of course I love page fourteen where it tells us what we need to do what we really need to do to, in order to activate the power that is God that will help bring us into recovery. And I have to say that I came into the rooms very much like this gentleman who I, I, I had a faith, I had a belief, but I could not get recovered. I was in the church. I was, I was involved. I was praying all the time, fasting, meditating, yet I'd go out and and get into the food. I couldn't help myself. I couldn't get recovered. What was my problem? Why? Why, when I had all this belief, all this 
faith. Why couldn't I get recovered? And on page 14, it says, uh, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly, was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me? Faith without works was dead. So my faith was not alive and living. It was dead. And how do I know it was dead? I, I didn't realize it was dead. But I know it was dead because it didn't work. If it was alive and vibrant, it, it would work. So I knew. I know. But then I didn't. Then I just thought God, God couldn't help me. But here it says that my faith was dead. I wasn't able to receive. It's like going to the gas station and trying to put gas into your car with the cap on. I couldn't receive the power that was available to me because I hadn't opened myself up to receive it. What does it take to be uncapped so that I can receive the power of God in my life? so that I can get this recovery that I've been told about, that people have talked about. I see it on their face. I see it in their eyes. How do I get this faith? It says it on page 14. It says that faith without works is dead. So I've got to have some works. And here's the works. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, Okay, I've got to work. Self-sacrifice brother. What is this work they're talking about? On page 64, it says in the first, up at the very top, it could have little permanent effect, this faith that I have. Though our decision, we make a decision to believe, to have faith in God. But the decision, though it was a vital decision, was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect. This is what happened to me over and over again. I believed in God. I, God helped me, I pray, and it had little effect on me. Unless, because this is what I did not do over and over again, unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face, oh no, I could not face myself. First you have to face and then get rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. See, I was blocked. I had the cap on. I had to come and be willing, get the cap off. I didn't know how to do that. I had to listen to my fellows. I had to follow the directions. I had to uh, do my steps. And unless we do that, and until I did that, my food, the liquor, was but a symptom. So we had to get down to causes and conditions. And once I did that, then I was able to receive the power of God and get on the road to recovery. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Sharon. Would anyone like to comment on these two paragraphs? This is Paula. May I comment? Yes, you may. Go ahead, Paula. You know, we we started with the two friends spoke of their spiritual experience. Now, this is Bill W. and, and, and Dr. Bob speaking. And you would think that you would be listening so closely. But look at what happened here. He interrupted. He interrupted with his thoughts. 
I used to be strong for the church, but that won't fix it. I'm going to say, write the words he used. I pray to God on hangover mornings. Well, how about before? See, that's what I always did after the fact. Then I prayed to God, not before the fact. I didn't want any answers then. I didn't want any answers then. And swore that I never touch another drop. But by 9 o'clock, I'd be boiled as an owl. There you go again. That cycle. But you know, I keep thinking, and this is why I'm sure our friends could stand there, because we we read their stories too. And what did what did Bill say when he was there at the uh in, and he was talking about God and at the Winchester Cathedral what something burst upon him. He said, I had needed and wanted God. There had been a humble willingness to have him with me and he came. But soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors. Mostly those within myself. The clamors were I want, I want now. I don't want to wait on God. Now, God came. It says very clearly. He wrote it. I had needed and wanted God. But what happened to the humble willingness to have him with me and to keep him with me? Oh, no. Those worldly clamors. And here is what we can see. Because the call always to God was after, not before. Thank you for allowing me to share with that. I do pass. Thank you, Paula. Would anyone else like to comment on these two paragraphs? Sarah. Can I share? I heard Sarah. And who else? Ma. Ma. Okay, Sarah and then Ma. Uh, good morning, Monica. Thank you for your service and good morning, Vision, for you. My name is Sarah, and I'm a grateful, recovering, compulsive overeater. And um, I wanted to bring us Back to more about alcoholism. Um, We're in the first step, basically. We haven't really walked through the second step and into the third yet. And what I found and what I've learned in my recovery is that um, uh, there is a solution. The doctor's opinion and more about alcoholism are the places where I need to be for the first step. And I think this particular paragraph um, was monumental for me, and I hope it will have some impact on some of you. Um, It's on page 30. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learn that we had to fully concede and here it is, to our innermost selves, that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery, the delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. And I think part of this is about um, believing something that's not true is the illusion, Um, the idea that somehow um, my idea is correct, Uh, And it also says um, in the back of the book about contempt prior to investigation. And I have to say that that was an extremely important part of my recovery too. Uh, Contempt prior to investigation to me means that I'm unwilling to hear or believe anything before I know anything about it. So I've already decided it couldn't be true. 
And I think that's what keeps people kind of dug into the place that they can't move into that first step. And as was stated earlier, it truly is the step that we have to do 100%. We have to really believe that we are powerless. And then the second part of the step is that our life is unmanageable. It's not just the food is unmanageable. The food doesn't have the control over me. Food can't do anything. It just sits there. It's my mind. So I have to concede to my innermost self that I am truly, honestly, a real alcoholic, a real compulsive overeater. And that is what gives me the gift of wanting the second step and believing that the second step can be there. And then I can work into the agnostic chapter. So I'm very grateful to be in the first step today because no matter where I go, I have to always go back to that step. I don't get to walk away from it. You know, 10, 11, 12 is fabulous, but 1, 2, and 3 is too. So I'm grateful to be here today, and I'm grateful to be in recovery and sober in my mind, in my mouth, in my body, and really be thankful and grateful to God. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Mara, go ahead, Mara. Hi, I'm Mara. I'm anorexic, and I'm a compulsive overeater, and thank you, everybody. Um, you know, this the story anonymous number three is, just one that's very close to my heart. When I was in a very bad relapse many years ago, a friend of mine from program would call and read from the story for me. But the part that I really remembered um, when when the reader just read about, you know, being, I don't forgot the exact words, but drunk as an owl or whatever it was by whatever time, it just brought back many years ago when I worked in a hospital. I remember I would sit there with one of my colleagues and eat a, quote, normal breakfast. It was before program. And I remember my goal was please don't start eating before noon. Just make it till noon. And then I would start binging at 12.01, but it was like just an accomplishment, like just please don't let me start binging all morning at work in the bathroom. And it's just such hell. And I guess the key difference then was I was alone. There were people all around me, and I could tell nobody because I thought I did this thing with food, and whether I was starving or whether I was binging, I thought I should be able to stop it on my own, without people, without God, just with Mara's will. And I am just was, and admit I'm just so powerless on my own resources. So anyways, thank you all so much, and with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Mara. And this is Monica, and I would like to share a few words. The two friends spoke of their spiritual experience and told him about the course of action, the onward movement they carried out. So here's Dr. Bob and Bill W. speaking about their spiritual experience. You know, spiritual experience, their awakening, their personality change, the changes um, of their thinking, their behavior the, that happened to them. They, so they're, they, they tell a little bit about, you know, what it's like now here to him. And they say, and they're also giving him information that there's steps that they did to get this. And um, so on this page here, we're, we're seeing, we're being given uh, instructions of how to... Uh, do service with a new a newcomer you know a few paragraphs back it was they shared their stories their personal stories with him first and then they went on and they explained the disease 
and what that was all about, the allergy of the mind and the mental obsession. And now they are speaking about the spiritual aspect of the disease. They're not going probably into big, big detail, but they're giving him um, a picture here that, you know, they have worked these steps, and because of this, they have had a spiritual experience, awakening. They have changed their thinking, their attitude, their behaviors have changed as a result of that. And, of course, he re- interrupts and says, what are you talking about, this God stuff? You know, I, I go to church, I pray, and like has been brought out. Yes, I too went to church. I too am a religious person, but there was something missing. There was something missing. And I couldn't be praying just for myself all the time. That didn't work. And with that, I will pass. And would anyone else like to share on these two paragraphs before we move on? Hi, this is Melanie. Melanie, go ahead. Hi, good morning, Monica. I just want to pick up a little bit from what you were talking about, uh, pulling out the spiritual experience in the course of action, like you were saying that, that we remember now that um, um, Bill had a white light experience. It happened just right away, and from that point, there was movement and change. Um, Dr. Bob got drunk, and then he um, did the step work, basically, by his actions, and went out and did some night step work, and he was changed. Because remember, he had been a member of the Oxford group, so there was lots of religion in uh, Bob's life, Dr. Bob's life, clearly, and that wasn't doing it from him, for him either. And they, they were explaining these things. But interestingly enough, look how the mental the mental state is again in um, AA number three. He did not get it. He didn't see that he was miles away because he didn't know what he didn't know and he couldn't see that he couldn't see in the situation what a place I was in when I did this sort of thing. And I said that very same thing and I couldn't get what folks were trying to tell me. And I couldn't get it until I put the food down because I was being absolutely anesthetized with this food that was going through my brain and in my body. I couldn't see it until that part was down and until some work began. And I think that this speaks a huge amount about faith. And the reason that we tell people exactly what it looked like, what my mind looked like when I, before I took that first drink, what it looked like. I was restless, irritable, and discontent, and I had to have something. I was going to blow up. I was going to up, I was going to do something up until I got that food and, and until that part came and I could finally, finally find that, that peace, that teeny, 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 teeny bit of hope, I wasn't going to get anywhere because I thought like, like a alcoholic number three, I couldn't get it together. I couldn't find enough faith to step out and do exactly what you do until I got what you got that kept me going with what I was going, that gives me what I have today. It's a brilliant thing. They're miles apart here, absolutely miles apart here because of the mental condition of alcoholic number three's brain. There has to be faith, maybe faith with grace. And that I pass. Thank you, Melanie. And let's move on. And Kim, would you read, please? Thanks, Melanie. Next day, found the prospect more receptive. He had been thinking it over. Maybe you're right, he said. God ought to be able to do anything. Then he added, he sure didn't do much for me when I was trying to fight this booze racket alone. On the third day, the lawyer gave his life to the care and direction of his creator and said he was perfectly willing to do anything necessary. His wife came scarcely daring to be hopeful, though she thought she saw something different about her husband already. 
he had begun to have a spiritual experience. That afternoon, he put on his clothes and walked from the hospital a free man. He entered a political campaign, making speeches, frequenting men's gatherings, places of all sorts, often staying up all night. He lost the race by only a narrow margin, but he had found God, and in finding God, he found himself. That was June 1935. He never drank again. He, too, had become a respected and useful member of his community. He has helped other men recover and is a power in the church from which he is long absent. And good morning, my fellows. My name is Tim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. And I read a lot there because I, th- I think it was powerful for us to see um, Alcoholic number three, his story in its totality. Because it was such a simple process that Bill and Bob did for prospect number three. We hear on the first day, they drove home that medical business. They let him know what he had been suffering from. Because if really alcohol was Bill B's problem, the hospital had dried him out eight times in six months. He would have been fine. They had to drive home that he has this disease, this dastardly combination of the allergy of the body and the, and the obsession of the mind. And when he was, realized he could not stop on his own, the next day they come back, he's more receptive. They tell him about the solution and the plan of action. And he has to concede. He sure didn't do much for me when I was trying to bite, to bite this booze racket alone. He's talking about God. And then on the third day, he makes that decision to give his life and direction over to his creator, and he was perfectly willing to do anything. And then he never drank again. That is a simple process. We lay out that problem. And the best solution I ever heard, the best description I ever heard of step one is, oh crap, I'm screwed. And that posturing propels you to seek a power, because if you're powerless, you need a power. And once you realize there's a power out there, they presented this solution, then you're going to seek that power through the plan of action, which is called the 12 steps. So, so this simple process is what allowed Bill D. to become a free man. And I have to think, ask myself, and I have to ask for my meetings. Is that what I'm presenting to the newcomer? Am I presenting the problem, the solution, and the plan of action in such a way that a compulsive overeater will know that they can be free? Or am I presenting just a temporary respite? Or maybe we can keep the food down for a couple months and then we're destined to pick up again. And I'm just going to end this with page 25 because this was really where my, for someone who's been in LA for many, many years without getting any you know, long-term recovery, on page 25 it says, the great fact is just this and nothing else, that we've had a deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows, and towards God's universe. So I had a lot of deep experiences in a way. But I had to admit they weren't effective because I couldn't keep the food down. And why was that? Because we must revolutionize our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows, and towards God's universe. And that's what Bill D is saying. He's going to go to any life. And what I was willing to do was to sort of change my attitude towards my binge foods. I was sort of ready to be nice to you people in the room because you understood me but I wasn't going to change fundamentally. I wasn't going to have a revolutionary change towards everything. And that's what Bill D is seeing here. He's seeing here 
but he has to change everything if he wants to be free from this obsession. And that's what happened. That afternoon, the third visit, the third visit, that afternoon he put on his clothes and he walked from the hospital. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Would anyone else like to comment on what was read? This is Katie. Katie, go ahead. Good morning. This is Katie, a recovered compulsive overeater in central Virginia. Um, I just wanted to focus on this um, first sentence on this second paragraph she read. On the third day, the lawyer gave his life to the care and direction of his creator and said he was perfectly willing to do anything necessary. Um, you know, that key of willingness is so crucial. And that was the difference for me from the uh, years I had already been in OA and the decades I had been binging and trying and not being able to stay stopped, is I wasn't willing to do anything I was told to do. And, you know, I had someone ask me recently, you know, or, or they said they weren't sure if they had hit bottom. And, you know, I didn't know that I had hit bottom. I didn't know I was going to stay abstinent. But I had that willingness to do whatever I was told. And so what had become, um, you know, my actions had been more like his, um, where he asked God to, you know, help him to stop the day after. You know, suddenly I had the willingness to ask God to help me in the middle of a crisis. I didn't, you know, I stopped calling people and telling them how bad my life was and all these horrible things that happened, but that I had kind of figured it out. You know, I started calling people in the middle of the crisis and saying, what should I do? How can I get through this? I learned how to have a different way of dealing with life, and that included having the food down. When I, had, when I would pick up the food, before I would pick up um, this spiritual uh, toolkit of how to live and how to be different, you know, I just did not get anywhere. Um, so this little line of the willingness to do anything necessary is so important for me because, you know, even today I can think, okay, I need to figure out this problem, and I present it to my sponsor and whatever she tells me to do, God gives me the willingness to do it, which I have to say a lot of times is to do nothing, which is very difficult for someone like me, to not fix every problem, not try to get my hands in there and solve and tell everybody what I think they should be doing and you know, arranging all the actors on the stage. Um, I think because I am so smart and I've got this all figured out, that I can, um, you know, figure out everybody else's life. And you know what? I can't. God gives me the willingness to do what I need to do in my life. And so often, um, you know, the next right action is not that hard to do. It's when I'm projecting uh, forward or I'm looking at the path that I get into trouble. So I'm so grateful to have this um, way of life that teaches me Put God in the driver's seat and me as the passenger. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Katie, and thank you to everyone who has shared. 
We will now close with the reading from the Big Book on page 164, followed by the Serenity Prayer. And Hoodie, can you read a vision for you, please? Certainly, Monica. Good morning. This is Hoodie, a recovered compulsive reader. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own health is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank 